The scripture reading this morning will be from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. And I'll be reading out of New American Standard, which I think will be different from what's on the screen there. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I have, excuse me, for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A song with hallelujah and it's a great, great prelude to what we're going to be talking about today. Because we're talking about the resurrection. And one really refreshing thing this time of year, every year, is that the whole world is talking about Jesus and talking about an event which is really the hub of the whole thing. Without the resurrection, the cross is just another crucifixion among thousands that the Roman Empire uh, performed to basically keep the world the way the world was. And you know, top-down, oppression, power over, crushing the small people, not uh, caring about the marginalized people. And then we have this event um, this Jew in a relatively out-of-the-way place in the Roman Empire um, who claims to be the Messiah and is put to death and on the third day raised from the dead. Glad you're here today. We have visitors. We're especially happy to have our, our, our friends from uh, the Healing Transition. Uh, it's great to have uh, Allison James Humphrey here, longtime friends of, of Tom and Mary Lou's and Cherie's family and actually a longtime friend for me now because I'm old enough to have a longtime friend um, <laughs> that's somebody else's friend. Um, but we're really happy to have them here from uh, Kentucky or Tennessee. Where do you? Yeah, they're really from Kentucky, but on, on the Nash- on the Tennessee side of the border, Nashville area, basically. Well, on the on the day that Jesus was executed by the Roman government, with the complicity of many of his own countrymen, it, it looked like an all too familiar story. Yet another failed attempt to change the world by some would be savior, some would be Messiah. And by all appearances, the same old, same old would continue on. A world where injustice and oppression and lust and sin and fear and death reigned. They were normal. That's just the way the world was, the way the world will be. The one who'd come to change the world, after all, was hanging in weakness and defeat on a Roman cross. Luke's gospel tells us that as Jesus was dying, quote, the sun's light failed. Darkness. And that darkness that was spreading over the sky that Friday afternoon seemed to darken any and all hope that the world could ever be different. Until something remarkably different happened. And this is the basic claim of of the gospel. And without this, we don't have a gospel. We're of all men, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, most to be pitied. The claim is a robust one, that he bodily, physically 
was dead, and then he bodily, physically came back to life. It's not some pie-in-the-sky, allegorical, you know, well, he's with us in spirit kind of thing. The, the, the scriptures are making a much more robust claim than that. And it lies at the heart of everything we believe and who we are. Because on the third day, Jesus emerges from the tomb alive. He appeared to people. There's evidence. He appeared to various groups of people at various times. And he wasn't just appealing to people, he wasn't preaching to the choir, people who already believed this. In fact, most of the people, or a good many of them, some of the most centrally important ones in his ministry, had fled, hightailed it away, right? Like a spooked deer. They're, they're hiding. They're, they're, they're in dismay, and they're full of doubt. And yet now these people, these very people, begin to believe. A movement forms around him, and, and it forms around the, the central message that this crucified and resurrected Christ was transforming the world, was transforming and saving humanity. And one of the people that the resurrected Christ appeared to with this message was the man who would become the Apostle Paul, who wrote the words that Stephen just read to us from Philippians chapter 3. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in what today would be, uh, I think, Macedonia, one of the Balkan countries there above, above Greece. There was a church there. And Paul basically, in this section that Stephen read, is expressing his desire to be transformed by, by what happened on that third day. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3, Philippians 3, 10 and 11, he says that his desire is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's Paul's own desire, and he hopes that'll be the desire of the Philippian uh, Christians, and by extension, all Christians. I think, Paul, we are, we are safe to say, would, 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 uh, would be invited to own the knowledge of Jesus, a personal knowledge of, of the Son of God, and to know the full power of his resurrection. Because Paul, what Paul had discovered was that the resurrection turns the cross's weakness into power. What if we, what if you and I, shared Paul's desire truly to know the power of the resurrection? What if we lived every one of our days like a third day, if I can put it that way? Resurrection's a reality. The tomb is empty. New creation has been launched. What if every waking moment of our days was a third day? That's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes this morning. What would that look like? What would that entail? What would it mean for us to, to uh, take on into our lives the power of the resurrection? So let's talk about that for a few minutes this morning, making every day the third day, knowing the power of the resurrection. First of all, that would give us the power to surrender self. The power to surrender self. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I don't really think it's, I think it's kind of a thick limb, not a real Wembley one that I'm worried about breaking, breaking through. I think a large amount of the stuff human beings do, maybe I'm projecting on you. That's okay if I am. I'll, it'll be turned into a confession then. If you're, if, it, this is just a, maybe a confession. See if it resonates. A large percentage of, of, of the things that we do, the calculations that are going on in our head, choices we make, decisions we make, things we commit to, 
things we're involved in, a very large percentage of those, if you boil them all down, are about ourselves. They're about looking better, people respecting us, people uh, accepting us. We, we're, we're people who are pretty, human beings I'm talking about, are pretty obsessed with ourselves. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in many ways when the serpent comes to Eve right out of the gate and says, you know what, this one prohibition that you've been given, this one tree, this one fruit of which you may not partake, the real reason is not the reason God told you. The real reason is that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's trying to keep you down. You, if you just sort of self-actualize and follow your own internal compass, you can be like God. And ever since then, in a thousand ways, in a thousand places, by people speaking a thousand languages, with all sorts of racial complexions, it doesn't matter, it's a universal human problem. We think we can, can, can run the show. We think we're in charge of our own destiny. We are fundamentally self-absorbed. Amen? Maybe, maybe some of you don't think you are. Maybe that's a, 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 from a meta standpoint, more proof that you really, really are. If you, don't, if you don't even get it. If that's not a struggle for you, you're either Jesus all right, you're there already, you know, great, praise, praise God for that. But I have to say, I'm, I'm a little skeptical. One can make the argument that this universal human trait of, of self-absorption is actually getting worse in our day and time and maybe in our part of the world. I don't know whether this is true or not. There are some academics who think that. Recently, just a few years back, a couple of, uh, I think they were sociologists, um, released a book about the proliferation of, of self-absorption in American culture. They wrote a book called The Narcissism Epidemic. Uh, one of them's name was Gene Twinge, the other Keith Campbell. And I'm just going to read you a short excerpt from, uh, from the introduction to this book. And they're not talking about narcissistic personality disorder. This is not, not talking about psychosis of any kind. That's a separate thing. They're talking about just a basic narcissism, a self-focus, a self-absorption that is, is becoming more and more normal, more and more, eh, you know, that's the way people are. And it's very disturbing to these people. And this isn't a theologically oriented book at all. It's, it's just an academic, you know, sort of big demographic study. Here's what they say in the introduction. We didn't have to very, uh, look very hard to find the narcissism epidemic. It was everywhere. On a reality TV show, a girl planning her 16th birthday party wants a major road blocked off so a marching band can proceed, uh, precede her grand entrance on a red carpet. That's a real thing. A book called My Beautiful Mommy, quote-unquote, explains plastic surgery to young children whose mothers are going under the knife for the trendy mommy makeover. It is now possible to hire fake paparazzi to follow you around snapping your photograph when you go out at night. A popular song declares with no apparent sarcasm, I believe that the world should revolve around me. People buy expensive homes with loans far beyond their ability to pay. People strive to create a, quote, personal brand, also called self-branding, packaging themselves like a product to be sold. High school students pummel classmates and then seek attention for their violence by posting YouTube videos of the, of the beatings. Then they write this, although these seem like a random collection of current trends, all are rooted in a single underlying shift in the American psychology, Qu uh, colon, here it is, the relentless rise of narcissism in our culture. Not only are there more narcissists than ever, but non-narcissistic non people are seduced by the increasing emphasis on material wealth, physical appearance, celebrity worship, 
and attention-seeking. That's disturbing. And let me suggest you something else that I think we see a little bit possibly of in, in the text here. There are kind of more publicly acceptable, uh, reputable, uh, you know, reputable kinds of expressions of this as well. I understand that this doesn't always have to be this way, so I'm going to say this with some heavy caveats, but our, our obsession, our preoccupation with achievement, I think this would apply mostly to middle class America, this sort of, you know, this obsession, your kids got to learn all these things and get into this school and da-da-da-da-da and learn to do that, just this achievement obsession. Um, that looks acceptable socially. It doesn't get a bad rap. People usually praise you for that. You get jobs because of that, right? You pack your CV, your resume with, with things that show your accomplishments and your achievements. Let me suggest you that in some cases, even though it is socially acceptable, it may be a manifestation of the same kinds of insecurities about being admired, being respected, being accepted that can show up in these more egregious, outrageous examples. This can be a form of enslavement, actually. It can be this vortex sucking your daily joy away because you're so obsessed with what other people are thinking about you, you're just killing yourself. Your identity's in your achievement. It's in your accomplishments. And basically, it's that everybody else will respect you if you boil it all down and take it back several levels. And boy, nothing will suck your joy away like that. So we need to talk about that as well because the devil's good at what he does. <laughs> he makes these things look socially acceptable. It isn't always the person beating up somebody and putting it on YouTube or, you know, uh, basically having a three-ring circus because their kid turned four, you know. You know, a lot of people have turned four in history. It, it's not that incredible, really. I'm, I'm, you praise God for every new birthday, but goodness gracious. Um, sometimes this is just, it will look to the rest of the world and, and throughout history as like bizarre. I hope we see that. Um, the resurrection, though, can, can finally bring a power sufficient to overcome our, our compulsion, our, our lust for achievement, for accomplishment. And I realize there can be a good side to achievement. The Bible talks about seeking excellence you know, on, on occasion. So I, I realize, that's why I said I'm caveating this. It depends on the heart. It depends on a person's motive. And it's hard for uh, me to know your heart or you to know my heart. For goodness sake, it's hard for me to know my own heart half the time. The human heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? Jeremiah wrote. God can tell, and we need to let His Word be the mirror that we see our soul in. We need to be honest and humble and try to be as self-aware as we can when we go to that Word and let it do its work on us, right? Especially look at the passages that you don't want to look at, that hurt, that, that are like, you know, a grinder grinding away parts of your character. Especially go to those, right? Uh, don't be the person who just runs around finding verses to slap on, you know, sort of yes-men verses. Oh, I knew I was good. Now I got the God saying I was good. That's great. Don't do that. Let it argue with you. Paul says that he once had what he calls confidence in the flesh. He was pretty convinced that his resume, his uh, track record, his, his record of performance was stellar. He says if anyone thinks, Philippians 3, 4, that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he starts giving his, his credentials. They're, of course, credentials in the world of Jewish rabbinical, uh, you know, uh, careers. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I wasn't just a Hebrew. I was a, a really good Hebrew. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. 
Very strict, right? Very conservative. That was their reputation. As to zeal, so committed, I persecuted people that I saw as heretics. I persecuted the church. At first he saw Jesus as uh, this, you know, sort of charlatan or misguided Messiah who wasn't what he claimed. And so he persecuted his followers. As to the righteousness under the law, he says, I was blameless. Now, Paul's motives may have been pure, in whole or in part. I will say, though, that he calls this three times the comp a confidence in the flesh. So that's not a throwaway phrase. This was a fleshly-oriented kind of you know, pedigree that he could trot out and go, look, I was, I was a really good person. It was fleshly, not spiritual. So we do have to acknowledge that. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Truth be told, much of our obsession to achieve comes from an insecure, desperate place that can be a kind of project of self-salvation. We're sort of taking the wheel and going, I'll, I'll make my way. And there's not always a lot of trust and a lot of meekness, the willingness to just let go and let God. That's kind of hard to find. We don't, we're, not, we're not leaving anything to chance. We are controlling things every step of the way, and it's a calculated image, it's a calculated resume, it's a strategy, everything. It's a, it's a self-salvation project. And here's the beauty and the glory of the crucified, resurrected Christ. When you begin to gaze on Jesus, you know, when I'm lifted up, all men will come to me, John says. Jesus said in the Gospel of John. When you begin to, to appreciate the beauty and the glory, the weightiness, the substance of the crucified and resurrected Christ, all of your achievements, be they vocational or financial or academic or social or what have you, they begin to pale by comparison. They just become less interesting. Well, Paul says this in Philippians 3.7, But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He goes, the more I appreciated how much worth, how much substance, how much glory my Lord has, my crucified, resurrected Lord, the less I was interested in all my accomplishments. They just looked like something I could easily give up. They're lost now. So what? For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, Daniel, Randy, Cherie, don't worry. I want to talk about the word rubbish. I know I've talked about sports. The Greek word skubalon, I think it's the only time it appears in the New Testament. It doesn't mean trash, like out of the city dump. It means the stuff you, the stuff you clean up when your baby has an accident, when you change a diaper. That's what this word means. I think the old King James said dung. Is that right? I don't remember. I think it said dung. It's, the, it's a word for manure. So if you're trying to say, let me tell you how little value I now put on my old track record, my performance, all my credentials, my resume. Can you think of a better word than saying it's, it's just poop? Sorry, I kind of did it. But it's, it, that's, that's what the word means. There's actually studies of this. He, he's not, this is, this is like, this is like a domesticated a little bit, to call it rubbish. It's making it a little more polite. The word would have had this full-on, just the most, you know, egregiously awful thing you can think of. That's how he sees his accomplishments. He's going out of his way to say, that just has no value to me at all. Why? What could do that? How do you spend your life? You know, he left Tarsus and goes down to Jerusalem. He's studying under Gamaliel's feet. This is a lot of work. 
He's studying. He's working hard. He's doing what Matt Harbor's doing right now. He's in the mines. I want to tell you, that's hard. That's hard. It's a different kind of hard, right? It's not, you, you know, your muscles aren't sore at the end of the day, but half the time you can't, at least when I was doing it, you wake up in the middle of the night with things you can't figure out. It's hard to leave there. And it's, it's very straining. Paul did all that, and he goes, nah, no good. I don't care anymore. He doesn't care anymore because he has fallen in love with the crucified and resurrected Christ. And resurrection power can do crazy things like that. It can also free us from our slavery to another kind of self-absorption. And, and that we're going to call it uh, our appetites. You know, a lot, there's a lot of folks who don't care very much about achievement at all. In fact, you, you, ra you raise some of them as parents. You're like, I wish you would care a little bit about achievement, right? But they're not really wired that way. They're not the ones who are going to go do all the things. What, they're, they're just interested in getting what they want. I mean, all of us are that way on some level. They, they, they want certain things. They have certain appetites. And, and they just want to know, how do I get that? How do I get that car? That's it. <laughs> you know? How do I get that new toy? How do I get this experience? You know? I'd like to go on this kind of trip. I'd like to try. It's just, I want to get my stuff I want. For lack of a better term, it's, that's appetites. And I would say that that's another big candidate for us human beings in terms of capturing our hearts and our allegiance and our priorities. Maybe we're seeking pleasure, maybe we're seeking possessions, whatever it is. This is another thing that can enslave us. And Paul talks about that as well. He says, knowing the power of Christ's res resurrection can lift us above this bondage to our desires. On down in the text in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, we didn't read this one today, but we will now. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the, ex the example you have in us. He says, look, there's another kind of example out there you don't want to follow. Verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross and the resurrection aren't doing it for them. They're, they're actually, it's re they're repelled by it. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory's in their shame and they mind earthly things. Notice the phrase, their God is their belly. Some versions render this, their appetite. That's their God. What you practically, functionally serve, if you're this person, is what you want. You may go to church. You may look the part. But what really jazzes you up, and what really orders your priorities at the end of the day, is I want these things, I like this stuff, I'm going to get this stuff, and that's number one. Things will be sacrificed for me getting the stuff. Getting the stuff won't be sacrificed for my brothers in Christ, what we're doing as a church, uh, you know, my, my, my moral and, and ethical transformation to be more uh, cruciform in my life. No, it goes the other way. The sacrifices go the other way. Your functional God is your belly. Woo, that's noble, isn't it? Kind of like your dog, right? It's kind of like animals. But that's what he says is out there. And the cross and the resurrection can help us, as Paul did, develop a new compulsion. And Paul invites all of us to join him in this compulsion. And it, it is to know the freedom of dying to self. Look what he says back in verse 10 and 11. He goes, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want his sufferings on the cross. That way of life, to be mine. I want to become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
All right, so, so living every day in, in light of the third day means to be empowered by this resurrection selflessness. Resurrection selflessness. But the resurrection of Christ also gives us another kind of power. And that's the power to stand before God. The power to stand before God. You know, in the realm of religion, and I've heard my friend, my good friend, close personal friend Bono, say um, many times that, that one of the biggest enemies of God, and when, he first heard, when I first heard him say this years ago, when I was you know, in my 30s or something, I'd be like, what's he talking about? I think I get it more and more. He would say one of the biggest enemies of God is religion. Things done in God's name that are actually not exactly what God's want, God wants. After all, and th- those are sometimes, because they're close enough, it's a, a better deterrent to real growth and faith in God around the world than if something were, were way off and you can see the difference. You think about the Pharisees in the four Gospels, far and away mathematically, the number one nemesis of Jesus. Way more than pagans. Jesus doesn't say that much about the pagans over there. He has mercy on some of those people. And he's willing to have mercy on Pharisees as well, like Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is not, you know, they're not all Nicodemus, who gradually over the course of the Gospel of John apparently come to faith. First he's questioning, by the end you see him aligned with Jesus in many ways. You don't always see that with the Pharisees. In fact, they think they know everything. They're pretty convicted that they're the, the, the arbiters and interpreters of the law. They're very conservative. They've got all these traditions that have developed about how to read the book. And if you read it any different than what they're used to, boy, they, they're apoplectic, right? That's who they are. Why do you violate the traditions of men? Uh, Jesus says, why do you not follow me? Because of your traditions, Matthew 15, Mark 7, and so on. So religion can be a big problem. And one of the things that is problematic often about religion is that it's a seemingly pious expression, but it's basically it can be based on achievement. It can be another form of, of, of accomplishment, of achievement. Um, in, in theological terms, this would be works righteousness. A righteousness based on your own performance, your own obedience, your own works, that ultimately the reason God is going to save you or bless you is because you minded your P's and Q's. You did all the right things. You followed all the rules. And so you get blessed, somebody else out there needs to learn better about how to follow the rules, and then they would be blessed. So you've got this working assumption that the reason you're right with God or your church is right with God is we do all the things right. Really. Think about it. Say that out loud. We do all the things right? Whew, that is some kind of naivete or arrogance or a blend, in my opinion. All the things in here. Everything in here. I'm not even close to that. Maybe you are. Again, maybe I'm going to meet Jesus soon. <laughs> Sooner than I thought. You know, we're all going to meet him soon. But you know what I'm saying? That, that's, a, that's a kind of crazy thing to say. Paul's former confidence in the flesh may have been of this sort. This kind of a religious version, a pious, a seemingly pious version of this achievement compulsion. Look what he says in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I'm more. Circumcised the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to a zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Check, 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 check. Aren't I good? Right? And yet, this is a wrong-headed way of approaching God. 
the crucified and resurrected Christ had transformed Paul's whole approach to pleasing God. Now he says, For his sake, verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He's given up the idea that he can make himself righteous by obeying the law perfectly. That's, that's out. I don't have that kind of, that's not my standing. I'm not in him because I have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law anymore. Instead, I have that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Paul would also write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, If we are saved, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? Indeed, he would come to learn that as he writes many times to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, that to the Romans, that no one will be justified by his or her own works. And the only way, folks, that we can fall prey to such a transactional view of our relationship with God is either that we diminish, we have a diminished view of God's lofty standard, so we think we've met it because we don't have any idea how lofty that standard is. The norm is way up there. And we're like, we have it right here so we can control it. It's in our back pocket. Either we diminish the loftiness of God's standard or we have an inflated view of our own performance of that standard. One or the other or both. That's the only way we can start thinking that we can be saved by our own works. Romans chapter 3 is one of many places where Paul explodes this idea. He says, this ought to be, all you need is this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, making every day a third day, as it were, means embracing not only what we talked about first. What, we did, what did we talk about first? Resurrection selflessness, but embracing resurrection uh, righteousness. Standing before God, not on the futile, futile basis of our work, but on the basis, the very efficacious basis of Christ's finished work at the cross. I want to talk about one more here. The resurrection also gives us power to face the grave. Power to face the grave. This may seem like so far off for some of you young folks that it's just a theoretical thing you can agree to. Of course, everybody dies. Ben Franklin said that. You know, everybody knows everybody dies. But it, functionally, you don't really believe it. I remember. I still have days like that. <laughs> but I got the other kind, too, more and more. Right? I mean, any of us could die tomorrow. We can throw that out. Easy to slide that off your lips. But we don't really think that, at least many of us. But it's pretty close to universal. That is, facing the grave. I, I, there are you know, a couple people in the Bible who didn't die, for whatever reason. We talked about Enoch this morning, and so on. But the Bible says this, for the general case of it. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We are facing... Death. In some ways, not to put too negative a spin on it, but the minute you're born, you begin to die. Right? I mean, it's just a cycle. And we're in that. 
And whatever we accomplish, whatever we achieve, whatever we build up or save up, all these achievements are going to ultimately prove beside the point. We will see. Maybe we'll see before then, but then we will, we will for sure see that the point was otherwise. It wasn't about resumes and portfolios and bank accounts and cool toys and cool experiences. It, it was about being in Him. Jesus said in the parable of the rich fool over in Luke 12, remember that rich man? He kept amassing more and more of everything, grain, goods. And so he, he just, his, his basic, his days were, were preoccupied by building bigger and better structures to store all of his stuff in, bigger and more barns. That's his life. That's his identity, right? What does Jesus say to him? This, that, that whole parable is about identity because he says, remember the guy, the, it's all predicated on the question from one person in the audience. Hey, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. What does he say? A man's life does not consist of the abundance of stuff he possesses. That's not who you are ultimately, your stuff. There's more to you than your stuff, your achievements, your accomplishments, your toys, all the stuff that makes everybody else love you. There's more to you than that. And as he tells this story, it ends, as you, as you recall, with this. Fool, this night is your soul, or your version may say life required of you. And the things you've prepared, all your barns and your goods and your impressive resumes, whose shall they be? And the, 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 it's a rhetorical question. They won't, they won't belong to any. It's, it's just going to go. Life is fleeting. It's transitory. James 4.14 says it's a mist. You're driving by a, a pond uh, on, a, on a cool morning, and there's this hovering fog. You come back at 10 o'clock, it's gone. That's our life. But here's what Paul says. Here's what the resurrection does. The resurrection of Jesus says that those who are in Christ anticipate a different end, a different outcome, as opposed to those whose God is their belly, their earthly appetite. Who, we are people whose, as he puts it, citizenship is in heaven. And because of that, we await a new destiny. So he says in verse 20 of, of Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What in the world? Paul uses that language a lot. 1 Corinthians 15, famously. We're going to get a new body. He calls it a spiritual body. He doesn't call it a spirit. I think sometimes we make that mistake. He says spiritual body. He uses the Greek word for body. So it's a third thing. It's not like this body, but he doesn't say it's a ghost either. In fact, the connection is made two or three times in Scripture between our resurrection body and Jesus' resurrection body. And I'll remember, or remind you that he could eat fish. He also could walk through walls, so it's not a category we have. Some have said it's not less substantive, it's more substantive than this world. That's why he can walk right through stuff, huh? Think about that. It's not because he doesn't have matter and he's just kind of like, I can go through this because I'm a ghost. It's because that's kind of a ghost. We sometimes get what's the real thing and what's the sort of shadow backwards, I think. We are headed, uh, well, I mean, I'll get there in a second, but look at this. Um, th th he also says something else is going to happen. So we're going to get this transformed, glorious body. Glorious literally means more substantive. But then he says, by the power that enables him, that is Jesus, to subject all things to himself. So he's also going to subject everything in the universe to himself. 
which makes me think of a couple of other passages where we read about this statement of Jesus ultimately, as Colossians 1.20 puts it, reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The, the cross, confirmed by the resurrection, launches this project of new creation, ultimately involving the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. I'm just quoting Colossians 1.20. Ephesians 1.10 says almost the identical thing. He is going to ultimately reconcile everything in the cosmos to him. He's the hub of it all. It's spun out of control in rebellion after the fall. Romans 8 says creation's groaning, right? It's waiting on our redemption. Somehow we're, our, our rebellion and creation's entropy and uh, breakdown and dysfunction, all of that, they go together in some cosmic way. We're going to get new bodies, and those new bodies are going to be fitted for a new world where everything is reconciled to Jesus. I don't know what that means, literally, but I want to use biblical language to describe it. And one of the places we have to go to is the passage I quote every single sermon. Revelation 21, not every, but every third probably. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This is one of the last visions in the Bible. John sees this vision of the new Jerusalem, which is identified with the church in, in Hebrews 12 and 13. So us, redeemed people, coming down from heaven. Interesting. He says in verse 1, this is near the end of the Bible, kind of tying everything up. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It alludes to Genesis 1. He created heaven and earth. Now it's a new heaven and new earth. Same kind of language. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice this, prepared as a bride. So it's a mixed metaphor. Whoever is the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. Well, we know that's the church. God's people. Coming down out of heaven to populate this new Eden-like creation. It has the tree of life in it, Revelation says. It has the, the water of the river of life, but it does say the curse is no more. So it's like the Garden of Eden, the fall, repaired. And you'll see here the, 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 the most beautiful thing is that God has made His dwelling place with us. The whole place is a tabernacle. The new heavens, new earth is a tabernacle. It's a dwelling place. Greek word for tabernacle. Uh, your version may say tabernacle right there. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. The former things have passed away. So the promise is that his resurrection foreshadows our resurrection and in some sense the resurrection of everything. Now again, how literal, figurative, I don't have any interest really in talking about that because the Bible really doesn't do that. I'd rather just take its language and let that inform my soul. But let's let it talk to us and say what it's trying to say. Now, that is a very, very hope-producing truth, is it not? Who wouldn't want part of that? We folks should have lives that are characterized by hope. Hope is, the, in the Bible, the confident expectation of something positive that's coming. Do we have that? Do we expect a good future for ourselves and for the world? And I want to tell you something. Christians, Christians can be, myself, I can be, remarkably cynical people. I, can get, I got a side that can get really cynical, kind of sarcastic. Sometimes I kind of like cynicism because I think it's honest. When people are being all syrupy and I'm like, nah, 
I like to hear somebody who's cynical, a cynical comic or something like that. I have that in me. And I think part of that is you, you notice the ring of truth in it. I mean, we live in the already not yet. The world is broken. The earth is groaning, Romans 8. But then there's other verses that say, look what's coming, though. And if at the end of the day, I'm a cynic, how has the resurrection changed me? Probably hasn't. Think of all the movies and TV series in our culture right now and over the last few years that imagine all the ways the world is going to end. That's like a cottage industry now. Apocalyptic dystopian stuff, right? We've got zombie apocalypses. How many zombie series have come out? I haven't watched any of them, but I know some of you have. What, what's up with that? There's, there's these apocalyptic environmental collapse movies. There's Blade Runners. There's, you know, all of this. What, what does all this dystopian imagining say about our culture right now? It's, it's like the whole world's going, we're going to be a train wreck really quick. But for us who believe in the resurrection and the promises of the resurrected Christ, we should be one beacon of hope, like a lighthouse on storm-tossed shores that can call people to a different view of the world and its future. We know how the future, we don't know how every single detail is going to turn out, and that can make us anxious sometimes. But we do know how it ultimately will, will turn out. There's a new Switchfoot song. One of my favorite bands, as you know, some of you who've been here a while. A song called Let It Happen, and it has this lyric in it that says, it's in the chorus, it says it three or four times, I don't know what the future holds, but I know you're my future. You know? How can we follow you, Lord, if we don't know the way? Thomas asked to Jesus. What was his answer? I'm the way. I'm all you need to know. You don't need a map. I'm your map. The person of Jesus, the crucified, resurrected Jesus is the way. And so the resurrection gives birth to a whole new outlook, a whole new positive disposition, which the Bible calls hope. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to what? A lot of things, but here it's to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. And Peter himself over in 2 Peter, chapter 3, I think it is, talks about the new heavens and new earth that we await after this wor world is, you know, the evil's erased. He says, we await a new heavens and new earth, and we ought to live like that. We ought to live out of knowledge, out of that vision. We have the script. We don't have all the details. There are going to be days we don't understand what's going on here and there. But we have the outcome, and it's already been inaugurated when that tomb was empty 2,000 years ago. All right, let's wrap up. So suppose you have heard this, all this talk today, these passages, these ideas, and you feel anything but what I've described. I want to tell you, I have days like that. You, maybe you feel like a failure in these areas. There, there's so many mistakes or, or shortcomings in your life or regrets about the past and you can't do anything seemingly about that it's just it's in the past and it's there and maybe you're wondering when if ever you'll attain this resurrection selflessness this resurrection righteousness this resurrection hope well let me tell you something it doesn't matter what you believe if you don't believe anything at all every single human being from devout Christian to Muslim to Hindu to agnostic to atheist fails. Whatever their own personal moral code and ethical code, they all fail. It's what the Bible calls sinners. All have sinned. All have sinned, Paul writes, and fall short of the glory of God. 
But here's the point. If we're sinners, we are sinners. But if we're sinners who are in Christ, and we're continually confessing our sins, our failures to Him, and turning back to Him each day, and here's something we need to know. And I want to leave you with this. Our transformation into beings shaped by the cross and resurrection of Jesus, hear me now, is certain. Certain. The Bible doesn't say anything but that. Did I say if you can't, if you can't be fall, fall away? No, you didn't listen if you thought that. I, I said, we're all sinners. If you're confessing and turning back to Him, pointing your life toward Christ every day. Sinner's a, a given. That's an axiom. <laughs> We don't have a world to work in that doesn't include everybody's a sinner. That's kind of like not the point. We, okay, we got that. Now what? The now what is if you're in Christ and you're doing the things the scriptures say to just seek him and turn back to him with your failures and give him your failures, your transformation is certain because it's in his hands, not yours. And the resurrection has launched a logic, a force, an impulse that the world cannot squelch. It's not instantaneous, and that's the challenge. We want it to be instantaneous. It's a process. It's less like a switch being flipped on than a sapling slowly growing into a mighty tree. And maybe there was a storm one year, and it got one side of it, you know, struck by lightning, and it's warped. <laughs> like the Davy Poplar on the UNC campus. It's massive tulip poplar, 300, 400 years old, but it grew up like that because there was a storm back in 18-whatever. That's still a stout tree. And God will make us into stout trees. We've got to be patient with ourselves as He is with us. Jesus said to John, after giving him this vision of the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem populating, and He said, Behold, the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making, present tense, I am making all things new. He's involved in that. And Paul, who wrote our text for today in Philippians 3, 10 through 15, says this, which we want to close with. He says, as we've already read in verse 10, he says, that I may know him. Here's my goal. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, right? So that I can share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's what I mean when I say we need to make every day the third day. But look what he says following that in verse 12. We need to hear this as well, folks. Not that I have already obtained this. What, what's the this? The attainment of the resurrection. I, I, Paul the Apostle says, I haven't gotten there yet. Not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Here's why. Here's why that can have a prayer of working. It's no longer out of just bootstraps, you know, hard work. It's because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Verse 12. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward the light lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature... There's some old versions that say perfect. The Bible says we can't be perfect, but then it tells us to be perfect in, in Philippians 3.15. I th that's okay with me if we understand in the context what Christian perfection is. Christian perfection isn't perfection. <laughs> it's thinking this way, he says. It's forgetting what lies behind every day. It's like a great athlete who has a, you know, they always have a memory of like five seconds. I've missed 14 three-pointers. Coach says, shoot it. And then he goes on a string of five and they win the game. 
His memory's like, he doesn't remember the great day he had, five, you know, last game or five seconds ago, or the bad thing he did. He just, he's going to play, he's going to do the process. And, and we can do that. We can lean into that process of transformation because Christ Jesus, the resurrected Christ Jesus, has made us his own. And it's interesting to me that Paul uh, in Philippians 1 says that he's confident that he who has begun this work in us will complete it in the last day. Paul's confident, are you? It's based on Jesus, not us. So let's be people who are third-day people every day. day uh, people who are, who, who are attaining to the resurrection and, and, and trying to learn more what it means to die with Christ so that we might live, truly live each day. Thanks for your attention today. Appreciate it very much. Appreciate your presence here with us. We're going to now sing this song, and if we can uh, help you in any way, let us know your needs by coming to one of the chairs here in the center as we all together stand and sing. <laughs>